listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This morning, the scripture reading comes from Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no child, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married, and when he died, left no children. And the second married the widow and died, leaving no children. And third, likewise. None of the seven left children. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Pastor Alicia, for that reading. Thank you for pitch hitting today on Lay Reader. Um, before we get started, too, on that note, uh, I got to give a shout out to Pastor Alicia because she absolutely crushed it the last two weeks here as I was away. Um, really good job in the pulpit. <clears throat> um, if you weren't here for some reason uh, or if you just missed the sermon, uh, definitely go on our website and check that out because she did an awesome job. Uh, I also want to give a shout out uh, to all of you. So, I planned my vacations out like months in advance, way, way in advance. I had no idea when I decided to take two weeks off in July that it was going to overlap with both the sidewalk sale and the pride parade. Um, But you all stepped up uh, in an amazing way. Um, The the pride parade was awesome. I did come home a day early for the pride parade. Um, We had, I think they said this last week, but last weekend, 30 people from our church came and marched in the pride parade, which is amazing. You can clap, sure. And I also heard that the sidewalk sale was a huge hit. Uh, Opportunity to really get out there and uh, just manifest God's love uh, to our community and especially to the families and the kids here in Brockport. So thank you for that. This church is amazing and vibrant and alive, and it is the people who are doing the work. It's just amazing. With all of that out of the way, let's talk about resurrection How's that for a transition? Um, (laughs) So this passage, how many of us have heard this one before? How many of us have some familiarity with this, where Jesus has asked a question about marriage and resurrection? That's that's like maybe a a third of us raised our hand. Um, This is not a super well-known story, but it is a story that comes up here and there. Uh, This story usually will come up when we're talking about the afterlife, Uh, So like in end-of-life conversations, uh, this one might come up. Um, In a Bible study, when we go like deep down our rabbit hole, uh, this story can come up. And we tend to focus especially on this one line from Jesus 
We'll put it on the screen, I think. Uh, when people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What does that mean? Like, what, what is he talking about? What is the afterlife going to be like? What is our state going to be? If I'm married, will I see my spouse on the other side? Are we still going to be married? Like, what is that relationship going to look like? Is there going to be romantic love in heaven? Will that still be a part of our experience, our existence? Will there be other things that can come along with romantic love? A lot of questions. I remember one time um, I was at this men's ministry. Uh, I, I, I was asked to speak there. I didn't really know many of the people. And after my talk, the conversation kind of turned into like this Q&A, ask the pastor, these guys I didn't know throwing out just random questions about the Bible and theology. And I remember um, this one guy spoke up and he was like, I've got a question for you, pastor. Will we get to have sex in heaven? <laughs> and I was like, no offense, but I don't think you're my type. <laughs> a, little, a little presumptuous. <clears throat> Seriously though, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. What does that mean? Is there still going to be? I mean, like Sexuality is such a huge part of our lives, our identities, our existence. Is that just going to be gone? Are we going to be like Ken dolls? Like what, what is that talking about? That's where these conversations usually go when we talk about this passage. But we're not really going to talk about that too much today. Bit of a bait and switch. Uh, we might circle back to some of these questions, but I don't actually think that's the main point of this passage. I don't think Jesus' words here are meant to fuel speculation about the afterlife and what it's going to look like. I don't think that's the point. To get the point of this one, we've got to remember the context of what's going on here. For the last few weeks... We've been reading this back and forth, this ongoing exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. How many of us remember the Sanhedrin? We've talked about it for a number of weeks now. The Sanhedrin was the ruling local authority, the religious authority in Jerusalem. You had the Romans and King Herod who like really ran things, but for like on the ground, day-to-day -day stuff, the Sanhedrin had a lot of power. Pretty soon, the Sanhedrin are going to arrest Jesus and hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. That's where this is going. And the most powerful and probably the most corrupt block of the Sanhedrin were the Sadducees. There were three groups that made up the Sanhedrin, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. You don't have to remember this. There's not going to be a test. But, I, but this, is, this is a little foreign to us, I think. I know it can be confusing. It's easy to get lost in these stories, like, what is a Sadducee? Why are they so sad? Uh, what is, you know, what's a Sanhedrin? So just to help us kind of understand the layout here, I want to clarify a bit. The scribes were the academics. They were, they were the Bible scholars, the ivory tower types. The scribes were the one Pastor Alicia talked about last week who asked Jesus about the greatest commandment, the greatest teaching from the law. That is a Bible nerd sort of question. That's the scribes. The Pharisees ran the synagogues. They were the teachers and the preachers, the ones who were on the ground with the people. They were the populists, right? The, if there was like a democratic branch, it would, have been, it would have been the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, not surprisingly, they asked Jesus a question about paying taxes to Caesar. They want to see where his loyalties lie. 
Is he with us or is he with Rome? And then we get the Sadducees, which was the priestly aristocracy, the priestly class, the aristocrats. These were the wealthy families that the priests were appointed from. Think like the one percenters of ancient Jerusalem. The Sadducees ran the temple. Uh, They were tight with King Herod. They were the ones who were making bank off the sacrificial system in the temple. That's the Sadducees. The other thing to know about the Sadducees, which is spelled out right here in our passage, is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. First line of our passage. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him a question. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. See, when your average Jewish person back then thought about the afterlife, when they dreamed what it would be like, they weren't imagining like souls going into heaven. That's not a very Jewish idea. That's not an idea we find in the Old Testament. Instead, when Jewish folks at the time of Jesus were thinking about the afterlife, they were thinking about resurrection. They believed that when you died, you rested, but then one day the Messiah was going to come to raise the dead, restore creation, put an end to injustice, and establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the afterlife most Jewish folks were waiting for. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any of it. Why would they? They're rich, right? Like, why would they be looking for a resurrection? Why would they be waiting for God to come and flip the tables and change things? We're perfectly good with things as they are, thank you very much. You can keep your resurrection. That's the Sadducees. For the Sadducees, salvation was a very this-worldly thing. You know, it was about this life. You follow the law, you keep the commandments, you honor God, be a good person, and God will reward you with health and wealth, and lots of money, and a long life, and and descendants, and children. That's how the Sadducees understood salvation. Which, by the way, that's how a lot of Christians today also talk about salvation, if if we ask. But then you have these other groups, these other factions, people like the Pharisees, who are going around preaching resurrection. They're getting the people stirred up, riled up, giving them the hope that someday God's going to set things right. Someday God is going to change all this, and the Sadducees don't like that. So the very idea of a resurrection, the very question of an afterlife, was a very divisive topic among first century Jews. This is important to get. Because when the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him about the resurrection, this isn't a few friends speculating about what the other side is going to be like. This isn't a random guy asking if we're going to get to do stuff in heaven. This is a group of people who have zero interest in resurrection. They're trying to get Jesus to weigh in on a very divisive theological question. If you've ever like hung out with someone and the topic of religion comes up and they start poking and prodding you with certain questions designed to get a reaction, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about? That is what's going on in this story. The very question these guys ask is designed to make resurrection look ridiculous. Imagine there's a man who marries a woman, and he dies without any children. So 
following the law of Moses, his brother marries her, but he dies without children. And a third brother and a fourth. Let's say there are seven brothers who all marry the same woman with no children. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Do you see what a profoundly silly scenario this is? It's also incredibly sexist, which we're going to get to uh, in a minute. But this is not an innocent question. This is a gotcha question. This is a trap question. And Jesus' response is absolutely amazing. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God? Zing, right? Like, that is, that is classic. We have we've seen throughout this exchange, uh, when these people bring Jesus questions to try to trap him, he usually just responds with another question. And like, I guess that's a question, but it's almost more of an insult, right? He takes a slightly different approach here. Now, this whole scenario uh, with brothers marrying each other's widows is probably a little foreign for us, a little confusing. I don't think that really speaks to our experience, hopefully. <laughs> but um, this whole setup actually comes from Jewish law. It's in the Torah. Okay, according to Torah, if a man dies with no sons, his brother is supposed to marry the widow to produce an heir, which is like weird, right? <laughs> and icky. I am not that close to any of my sisters-in-law. It is just not cool. Um, there's two things going on here, though. First, this law, believe it or not, was actually intended at the time to protect the woman. Uh, we're talking about the ancient world. This is a time when women have zero rights. They can't own property. They can't testify in court. They can't really have jobs. As a woman, you were entirely dependent on your husband back then. And if your husband died, you were dependent on your sons. So if a man died without a son, the responsibility to provide for the woman fell to the brother. That's part of what's going on here. The other piece of it, though is maintaining the patriarchy. There's one piece that's trying to protect women, but there's another piece, I'd argue a bigger piece, that's trying to protect wealthy men. Trying to ensure that these rich families keep their money. That these wealthy men have an heir to pass their uh, stuff onto and treating women like property. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? you might as well say, whose property is she going to be in the resurrection? Who's this lady going to belong to in the afterlife? That's the question the Sadducees are asking, which is why Jesus' response is so amazing. He shuts them right down. You are very wrong. In the resurrection, people aren't going to be given in marriage anymore. Women aren't going to be pressed around like property in the resurrection. Instead, they're going to be like the angels. We all will. When the Messiah comes to raise the dead, set things right, and make all things new, the patriarchy is going bye-bye. Class distinctions are going bye-bye. Broken institutions that subjugate and dehumanize people are going bye-bye. That is the point of this passage. 
If we want some takeaways from this one, if we want to draw some conclusions, some speculations about what we should expect in the afterlife, what it's going to be like, the first thing we have to say is that the resurrection is going to bring an end to all unjust systems. I think a lot of times in church when we talk about the afterlife, we're thinking way too small, way too like personal and individualistic. Amen to that. Carries with me. A lot of our speculation on the afterlife is really just about like surviving death and avoiding hell, which like those are good things, but that's not the whole picture. When Jesus talks about the afterlife, when he talks about resurrection, he's envisioning a whole new world. In the resurrection, we're not going to need systems to protect the vulnerable from exploitation because there's not going to be any exploitation. There won't be disparities anymore based on race and class and gender. There's not going to be violence or sickness or death. All of that is going to be a distant memory. This also means if you've been the victim of some unjust system, uh, if you have been marginalized or abused, made to feel like you don't belong, you're going to belong in the resurrection. There's going to be a place for you. I don't know what sexuality and romantic love will look like on the other side. But I do know that we are going to be free to be our fullest, truest, most perfect and authentic selves. Free of sin, free of limitations, free of death, free of sickness and all the things that come along with human frailty. Any obstacles that stand in the way, any institutions that try to pigeonhole us into some predetermined mold are going to be gone. We're going to be like the angels. And this isn't just a hope for the future. That's really important. This isn't some pie-in-the-sky, otherworldly dream, some opium for the masses to distract us from our miserable existence. This is a hope that's supposed to start now, in the present which is my second takeaway here. The resurrection has already begun with Jesus. It's really important to make this connection between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all of us. On Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. The early Christians used the language that he was the first fruits of the resurrection. That's like saying he was a, a trailer, a preview, a foretaste of the fate that awaits all of us. Jesus got the ball rolling. The resurrection has begun. We are called in the meantime to be a resurrection people. This means working to overturn unjust systems that dehumanize people. This means working to restore hope to the vulnerable. This is why we do events like Just Desserts here at the church. This is why we march in the pride parade. We've already seen the future God has planned for the world in Christ. Our job is to start embodying it now. The church should be a place where the resurrection is put into practice. We should be modeling for the whole world what it's going to be like. For the first Christians, in like the early years of the church, this looked like elevating widows and outsiders 
to positions of honor and leadership. We've already seen in this ancient system, if you didn't fit into their kind of patriarchal structure, there was no place for you. Widows who had no one left to care for them were destitute. If you were an unmarried woman, a eunuch, an orphan, poor, society didn't have a place for you, but you thrived in the early church. Some of the most important leaders, teachers, and missionaries we find in the Bible are single women. People like Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James, Mary and Martha. There were a lot of Marys. Uh, (laughs) But there are other women we meet like Salome and Junia and Phoebe and Priscilla. Most of them were single, unmarried women who had no place in that society. Many of them were widows. And they found a place of honor and leadership in the church. This is true for other outsiders as well. Uh, One of my favorite stories from the Bible is Acts chapter 8. It's a story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. How many of us know this one? Does that ring a bell at all? Um, There is a Jesus follower named Philip who's traveled along the road, and he comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah. They've got this giant scroll that they're trying to understand. Now, the thing you have to know this eunuch, in addition to being from the wrong place, he's a, an outsider, he's also a eunuch, which meant he was at the bottom. He did not belong. There was no place for him in that system, especially in Judaism. Jewish law stipulated that eunuchs were banned from the assembly of God's people forever. It's in Deuteronomy. Don't even let them in the door. But Philip meets this eunuch, helps unpack the Bible for him, Then he tells him about Jesus. And the eunuch asks a very specific question. Is there anything preventing me from being baptized? Which the correct answer is yes. You know, Philip should get out Deuteronomy and say, I'm sorry, man, it's it's spelled out right here. You can't. But Philip takes the eunuch down to the river and baptizes him into the church because that is what resurrection hope looks like. By the way, According to church tradition, that eunuch went on to found the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which to this day is one of the oldest branches of Christianity in the world. If you don't have a place in the world, if the powers that be don't know where to put you, what to do with you, you should have a place here. There should be a home for you. If not, that's a sign that our our churches and our Christian institutions are still shaped by the broken realities of this world. That brings us to our third and final takeaway. Don't limit the power of God to the broken realities of this world. We get this right from Jesus' rebuke of the Sadducees in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are wrong, that you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? The Sadducees underestimated the power of God. Their imagination, their understanding of what God could do could not grow beyond the broken confines of this world. How often do we still see that kind of thinking in the church? How often do we see our imaginations, our ideas about marriage and family, discipleship and leadership It's usually just a a baptized version of whatever our world was doing like 40 years ago. (laughs) 
That's usually how it works. Uh, most books on discipleship are just like self-help with some Bible verses. Usually not even very good self-help. Um, we talk about Christian leadership. We talk about the pastor as a CEO. And then we wonder why pastors get into so much trouble. We assume that like a good Christian family just looks like a good American family and like goes to church once a month. That is not how it should be. In a lot of churches today, there's no place for single people. If you're single in the church, you've probably noticed that all the ministries are formatted around the nuclear family and very stereotypical traditional gender roles. Uh, if you're not married and don't intend to get married, uh, if you don't have kids, if you're widowed, uh, if you're asexual or some other like, like gender or sexual minority, there's often no place for you in the church. We don't put our widows in charge anymore, and I think that might be part of the problem. The Sadducees missed the boat on the resurrection because they couldn't imagine the new reality, the new world God was bringing into being. Don't miss the boat. Start thinking bigger. Start dreaming bigger. Don't just accept what the world is handing us. Don't assume that in order to be a good Christian, you've got to be successful in the world's eyes. Don't limit the power of God to the broken powers of this world. Because of the resurrection, anything is possible. And everyone belongs. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like and what it's going to look like. My imagination is not big enough. But I do believe that whatever experience of love, whatever experience of belonging and connection and goodness and joy that we have in this life, it's just a taste. It's just a sample of what the resurrected life is going to be. And the resurrection has already begun. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world to demonstrate your love and your grace and to instill us with that bold hope of resurrection. God, we ask that you would put that resurrection hope into our hearts, expand our imaginations, open our eyes to the promise of a world where death will be no more, where injustice will come to an end, where everyone will belong, and where we will be like the angels. God, help us to manifest that hope right here in the present. May it all be for Christ's glory. It's in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.